0: The History of Literature Podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: However, did you guess, Mr. Holmes? Miss Smith, I never guess. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems, give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis, and I am in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull routine of existence. I crave mental exaltation. That is why I have chosen my own profession, or rather, created it. For I am the only one in the world. Then how do you account for the bullet that has so obviously struck the window frame?
0: By George! However did you see that?
1: Because, Dr. Carthew, I looked for it.
2: Mm. Oh, man, I could listen to those all day. That's Jeremy Brett, the actor, playing the role of his lifetime, Sherlock Holmes. I grew up on that version of Holmes, the wonderful production by Granada Television. Others have their favorites. Maybe yours is... Benedict Cumberbatch, or maybe you like Robert Downey Jr., or go all the way back to Basil Rathbone. All of them breathed life into Sherlock Holmes. All of them contributed in some way to the creation of Holmes as a popular literary mythical figure. I'm Jack Wilson, and this is the History of Literature podcast. We have a treat today a conversation with Matthias Bostrom, author of an astonishing new book called From Holmes to Sherlock. The story of the men and women who created an icon. An icon, perhaps. The first modern-day popular culture figure in the, in the era of modern mass media. And a literary myth. Remember what we talked about in our discussions of literary myths that we've had before in previous episodes. When we talked about Don Juan and Faust. For example, we defined myth as a literary character who has a life outside of the text. Holmes qualifies, and he's much more recent. We haven't lost his origins to the murkiness of time the way we have with some of the others. We know who wrote him, who played him on stage, who parodied him, who drew him, all the people who have made decisions about Holmes and who together have turned him into something bigger even than its author intended. But along with all those interesting details, those additions, we also Have to give the author credit, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It was his genius and his talent that fueled the creation of the famous detective and his almost equally famous companion, Dr. Watson. Who was Conan Doyle? What sort of person was he? Where did he get his inspirations for Holmes and all the other details in the stories? And what did he do once the world seized his invention and started running away with him? How did Conan Doyle react? Well, that's the good news, because this is the modern era. We have his letters, we have his speeches, we have the autobiographies of his friends, and we have an interview that he gave that was recorded. I'm going to play a, a bit of this now, so you can hear from Conan Doyle himself how he came to create homes and what he thought of the phenomenon that he brought into being with his popular and charismatic detective.
3: Well, first of all, about the Sherlock Holmes stories, it came about in this way. I was quite a a young doctor at the time. i had, of course, a scientific training. And uh, I used occasionally to read detective stories. It always annoyed me how in the old-fashioned detective story, the detective always seemed to get at his results, either by some sort of lucky chance or a fluke, or else it was quite unexplained how he got there. He got there, but he never gave an explanation how. That didn't seem to me quite playing the game. It seemed to me that he's bound to give his reasons why he came to his conclusions. Well, when I began to think about this, I began to think of, turning scientific methods, as it were, onto the work of detection. And I used, as a student, uh, to have an old professor, his name was Bell, who was extraordinarily quick at deductive work. He would look at the patient, he would hardly allow the patient to open his mouth, but he would make his diagnosis of the disease, and also very often of the patient's nationality and occupation and other points entirely by his part of observation. So naturally, I thought to myself, well, if a scientific man like Bell was to come into the detective business, he wouldn't do these things by chance. He'd get the thing by building it up scientifically. So, having once conceived that line of thought, uh, you can well imagine that I... Had, as it were, a new idea of the detective and one which it interested me to work out. I thought of a hundred little dodges, as you may say, a hundred little touches by which he could build up his conclusions, and then I began to write stories on those lines. At first I think they attracted a little, very little attention. But after a time, when I began the short adventures, one after the other, coming out month after month in the Strand magazine, uh, people began to recognize that it was different to the old detective, that there was something there uh, which was new. They began to buy the magazine, and uh, it uh, prospered. So I may say did I. We both came along together. And uh, from that time, Sherlock Holmes fairly took root. I've written a good deal more about him than I ever intended to do, but my hand has been rather forced by kind friends who continually wanted to know more. And so it is that this monstrous growth <laughs> has come out out of what was really a comparatively small seed. But the curious thing is how many people are in the world who are perfectly convinced that he is a living human being. I get letters addressed to him. I get letters asking for his autograph. get letters addressed to his rather stupid friend, Watson. I've even had ladies writing to say that they'd be very glad to act as his housekeeper. One of them, when she heard that he had turned to the occupation of keeping bees, wrote saying that she was an expert at segregating the Queen, whatever that may mean, (laughs) and that she was evidently predestined... We're the housekeeper of Sherlock
2: Holmes. Fascinating. I'm fascinated by this idea of a character who gets out of the artist's control. You might think it would be viewed as a pilfering, a theft, something negative. On the other hand, what could be more flattering? Nobody steals a character who isn't popular for some reason to begin with. And there are some details of the story that are famous, of the story of Conan Doyle creating Holmes. Major details. He killed off Holmes and then brought him back. And minor details. There isn't a deerstalker hat in the text. That's a common bit of trivia. Nor does Holmes ever say elementary, my dear Watson. Those were added later. But Bostrom gives us other details as well. He compiles them all, yet he tells them in a very readable format. Here's a sampling of what I learned in the Bostrom book. I should tell you that I'm a casual fan, a fan of literature, a, an avid watcher of Sherlock Holmes, and a dabbler in reading the stories. I've probably read them all at least once, but not obsessively. So I know a bit, as much as most, I suppose, but certainly not as much as many. I wouldn't call myself a Sherlockian, not even close. So take this with a grain of salt when I say that here's what I learned. This is what I got from the Bostrom book, which I enjoyed going through. Conan Doyle was an innovator of stories with a recurring leading character. That was new. That was something that Conan Doyle brought to the literary scene and the world of magazines like the Strand magazine. The deerstalker had, I learned, came from Paget, the man who illustrated the Holmes stories. Conan Doyle's family was involved with the publications, his sisters typed them up, and his mother once begged her son not to kill off Holmes. She also gave him the idea for one of the stories. The first parody of Sherlock Holmes, which presented Holmes as a real-life character, a real-life figure who came to dinner, was by J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, who became a lifelong friend of Conan Doyle's. Those are my notes from 30 pages of the book, and the book has over 500. I loved reading about the response to the death of Holmes, the acts of mourning, the hatred toward God, the Venom was levied against Conan Doyle, and Conan Doyle's uh, puzzlement at the idea, at what was going on, at the concept. He had done the seemingly impossible. He had imagined into being... A character who was so lifelike and so compelling that people treated him more like a real person than any typical fictional character. But enough of my thoughts. Let's hear from the expert, Matthias Bostrom, native of Sweden, who has written an entertaining encyclopedia of a book on an endlessly fascinating subject. Sherlock Holmes, coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, joining me now all the way from Sweden is Matthias Bostrom, author of the new book, From Holmes to Sherlock, the story of the men and women who created an icon. Matthias Bostrom, welcome to the History of Literature podcast.
4: Thank you very much.
2: So I found your book fascinating and very readable. It it was almost like an encyclopedia of information, but the way you've told the story is is very readable in a series of vignettes and and the narratives i just couldn't put it down
4: <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm happy that was the case
2: <laughs> but it seems like it it probably took you a while to compile the information and is this something was this a labor of love for you to work on sherlock holmes
4: yes i've, I've been sherlocking for almost uh, 30 years oh. well it's actually 30 years this year and um I've had the thought of writing a non-fiction book on, on Sherlock Holmes. I never had the, the right idea how to do mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. because why uh, write just one more when there are so many and so good uh, non-fiction books on Sherlock Holmes, uh, general ones? So, but when I had uh, the idea of writing a chronological story about the whole success story from the 1880s until today and do it in a narrative, nonfiction way, then I thought that no one had done that, that before, and I could really do something that no one else had done before.
2: Right. Well, it's really an interesting topic, and it's it's perfect for our show here at the podcast. We've been looking at some literary myths, and I just find it fascinating that this is an example of one where we have such good documentation of it. A lot of the myths we had looked at were very old and ancient and it gets a little murky, but this was one where you can trace it right down to the precise details as to <laughs> who added certain aspects of the myth and whether it came from Arthur Conan Doyle or or it was added by someone else later. And It really is a fascinating read.
4: So, Yes, but, but I just want to add that that's also because we have had research in this area for some 80 years, and there are so many uh, Sherlockian scholars and Dorian scholars who have done so much to find these details.
2: Right. So you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. Trying, at least, (laughs) balancing. And my guess is there were probably a few things that have passed into legend that maybe you had to correct. Maybe you were finding things that that weren't well sourced?
4: Actually, most things were well sourced, but um, there there were certain areas where there were where there was information lacking, um, especially regarding uh, Conan Doyle's sons, hmm. Adrian Conan and Dennis Conan Doyle, who um, took over the business after the death of their father. Right. Um, no one had really looked into that, uh, uh, the Conan Doyle estate, during the years from 1930 to 1970. So, I mean, that was a big area of uh, information that uh, was free for me to use, and no one had done that before.
2: Right. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. Let's start, actually, let's start with you when you were first encountering the Holmes stories, do you remember the first time that you read
4: the actual Conan Doyle stories? I I know I was about 10 years old. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the exact feeling or anything. I mean, I was very much into juvenile crime fiction at the time, and Sherlock Holmes was just one more book, or, well, there were a number of books, but um, one more character. I remember I liked Sherlock Holmes and I liked the detective stories, mm-hmm. and um, I must have been a little bit more interested than than the normal kid because I remember a teacher I had when I was thirteen years old uh, because he started bringing with him a collection of short stories, uh, home stories, uh, to the school, and I could borrow them. And when I had the read the stories, right in the middle of, of, of the time with the class, uh, he, he started asking me questions about the stories in front of all the other students. <laughs> what, right. what was the name of uh, <laughs> Professor James Moriarty's brother? I, I should know that it was uh, Colonel James Moriarty, which is kind of weird. <laughs> I've
2: heard that. I spoke with a friend just yesterday who's a Sherlockian, and she said that uh, the conventions and the gatherings will often begin with a trivia contest. Or
4: yes, and I think uh, if we go back in time, that was even more. A serious, serious thing in the nineteen thirties or nineteen forties, because um, if you lost such a um, number of questions, you had to buy for the buy the drinks for the oh.
5: other.
2: <laughs> right.
4: <laughs> Nowadays, it's more of a pastime <laughs>
2: <laughs> Okay, so you established yourself early on as an expert. Was there anything? Do you remember? feeling surprised by anything in the stories. Uh, the question I'm trying to get at is whether you remember uh, learning about Sherlock Holmes as just a cultural figure or maybe from some of the television shows or comic books or things like that. And then the experience of actually reading the stories can be quite different.
4: Yeah, yes, because I, I had surely seen uh, um Sherlock Holmes in many other juvenile fiction and well comics and, uh, and so on. But uh, so I knew a lot about the character before I read the stories, and and the stories are quite different from what you think because the normal way we we look at Sherlock Holmes is he is almost like a cliche character with a uh, the really sharp, look, sharp uh, silhouette, And um, mm-hmm. in the stories, he's more, he's not that weird, really. He, he's more of a gentleman, uh, right. a Victorian gentleman, uh, gentleman detective. Of course, he has all these weird things going on, uh, but it's more of a, more of a facade.
2: Right. There's an interesting story that you tell or a detail that you provide in the book where And it's talking about the deerstalker hat. And that's something that's passed down into iconogra- yeah. into our iconography of Holmes. But actually, you point out that the illustrator would only use that when Holmes was headed out to the countryside, maybe on a as part of a hunting trip or something. And the idea that he would be chasing around London in a deerstalker hat was just, uh, the illustrator found ridiculous. And he would be wearing
4: a top hat. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, Deerstocker was only for the countryside. Right. Uh, no one would use it in London. And
2: on the other hand, there were some details about Holmes that maybe didn't make their way into the certain television shows or, or the comic books like uh, his use of cocaine or maybe the disguises or some of the other uh, details like that that are associated with the Holmes stories, prominent in the
4: Holmes stories. Yes, the cocaine use, uh, the drug use, uh, you find it in some, well, you find it in the in of Rathbone movies and in Jeremy Brett TV series and, and so on. So, uh, I think it's quite common that uh, it's mentioned and it, it is a widely known thing about Sherlock Holmes that he mm-hmm. used
5: cocaine.
4: Mm-hmm. Uh, there there are, of course, some editions of the Sherlock Holmes stories where they have edited out his use of cocaine. Right. Yeah, I re- I remember one Swedish juvenile edition where where they had just removed it from from the book.
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, Arthur Conan Doyle and his literary talents and his achievements and what he invented with Sherlock Holmes and the Holmes stories. So let's w- let's start with what he would have been reading. What did he grow up reading? What was the young Arthur Conan Doyle
4: reading? Uh, at the age of ten, I would say that he. He read a lot of adventure stories mm. uh, taking place, on, place on, uh, on the oceans or on the prairies in in the U.S. or Rocky Mountains, uh, uh, written by, for example, R.M. Ballantyne and mm. uh, Captain Maine Reed, the popular adventure uh, writers of the time, especially juvenile fiction. But he also read, um, for example... So Walter Scott uh, he, mm. and he read uh, a favourite of him was um, Edgar Allan Poe so oh. he, he was already at, at the age, age of 10 or very early in his life he was into the, the adventures and mysteries and gothic stories and, mm. so, and of course he also read other more compulsory things which he had to re- read for school or so on
5: Mhm.
2: And he read Robert Louis Stevenson, another adventure writer.
4: Uh, yes, but I think that must have been later in life because oh. uh, Robert Louis Stevenson wasn't that much older mm-hmm. uh, than him. But but Robert Louis Stevenson was absolutely one of his idols, one of the, the authors he tried to be like, mm. uh, especially early in his, um, in his writing.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a little, um, it might be kind of an underappreciated element of the home stories is what uh, good adventure stories there are. There's, you know, this is not a a detective sitting in a room interviewing a person or two and then solving a puzzle, but they get out on the streets and they go on, you know, real escapades.
4: Yes, and and, and Conan Doyle actually said that they were adventure stories because all the titles of them, uh, or the, the short stories. I mean, it's um, the adventure of uh, right. the six Napoleons. The adventure of uh, well, whatever it was, <laughs> the title of, of of each story. So it always almost always started with the adventure of. Right. So he 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 meant them to be uh, adventures more than mysteries, and I think. Since they were adventures, he could all um, focus quite a lot on on the hero and uh, his friend, and make it more personal about these two men, Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson.
2: Right. So let's let's talk about Watson. Uh, we know Holmes. I mean, Holmes is is such a great invention, but just as a literary technique, had anything like the narrator of Watson been done before? Was he following any models or was that something Conan Doyle invented?
4: I would say that he invented it because Edgar Allan Poe had, he had an anonymous uh, voice or uh, anonymous person telling the stories about uh, Monsieur Dupin. But um, Conan Doyle definitely developed it into a person that you can really be sort of a, a friend to Dr. Mm-hmm. Watson. And he is your uh, sort of, yes, he's your friend in, in, in the story, much more than Sherlock Holmes, because you can't really get close to Sherlock Holmes, but you can feel like you were um, right. uh, Dr. Watson.
2: And we we're, we can sort of stand in Watson's shoes. We react to Holmes yes. the way that
4: Watson does. Yes, and it, the thing is that there have, had not been a Watson in the stories; they would have been very short stories because right. Sherlock <laughs> <from> Holmes <laughs> often knows the solution from two or something.
2: Right now, you have a really some really vivid descriptions of Arthur Conan Doyle when he became a medical student and he encountered uh, Doctor Joseph Bell. So how did how did Doctor Bell provide a model for Sherlock Holmes?
4: Doctor Bell had the uh, the power of observation and deduction. Uh, he wanted it, uh, or he ne- needed it, because he wanted to be able to just look at a patient and see what kind of illness or or, or what. Uh, whatever, what was the problem with this patient instead of asking 20 questions Mm. to get it. But um, by just looking at the patient, he could see occupation, geographical uh, origin of of the person. Uh, He could see uh, health issues, uh, health problems. He could see a, a lot of things, just by having a quick look at them and then deduce things from from that spot of mud on their shoe or whatever, yeah. exactly like Sherlock Holmes later did in Conan Doyle's stories. So when Conan Doyle started writing the Sherlock Holmes stories, he remembered his old professor uh, at the university, Dr. Joseph Bell, and he felt that if that is possible, in reality, it, it should be possible to do in fiction too.
5: Right.
2: <laughs> and he seems to have remembered the experience of sitting in the classroom. He, I think you quoted a, a letter of his he wrote afterwards that said the experience of watching Dr. Bell uh, deduce all of this from his observations was disconcerting, uh, almost as if he was you know, had some kind of special power or something. And that reminded me of the way that Watson often reacts to Holmes, where he's <laughs> he's amazed and astonished. And uh, I wondered if that was coming from Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, recollection of what it was like to be a student in the class.
4: It must have been, because uh, Dr. Bell was such a popular teacher. Uh, his classes were... Was- they were always uh, full of students uh, listening to him. They were all amazed. And uh, the reason why we know so much about these uh, classes uh, is because so many of his students have later um, written down memories and published in their own autobiographies or uh, articles and so so on. So they there are so many stories uh, uh, still around about about him
2: and conan doyle never never hid the fact of the influence or or disguised it or anything he he no. credited dr bell right or he, he even wrote to him at at one point and and thanked yes. him in some fashion
4: yes it, it was um, after the Sherlock Holmes success had started with with the sh- short stories um uh, I think he had written maybe 12 stories or something like that, uh, when he told a journalist uh, from the Strand Magazine, actually, uh, and gave him the name of this uh, doctor in Edinburgh who had inspired him. And uh, very soon after that, um, Dr. Joseph Bell was really... Connected with Sherlock Holmes, uh, um, he was uh, sometimes an expert witness um, mm. during trials in Edinburgh, and uh, the newspapers always just called him Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> 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 because right. everyone knew that he was uh, the he uh, the, model. the the model for Sherlock Holmes, and I don't think he he actually uh, did mind uh, uh, about that, but. Um, it was something he he had to live with for the rest of his life.
2: Right. Now Conan Doyle seems from his appearances in your book, he just seems like a very decent person. I, I, I didn't find any passages where I I thought he was uh, snobbish or where he mistreated someone. It, was he was he just genuinely a good guy?
4: No, I don't think so. I, I, oh. I, I think he had darker sides. Oh, yeah. We, we all have darker <laughs> sides. Um, I won't tell you about my darker sides, but uh, <laughs> I think he was really a gentleman. Uh huh. And he tried to do good all the time. I mean, he always he was fighting for so many. Uh, important things. He ro- constantly wrote letters mm, to the editor, right. and uh, debated, and, uh, and wrote pamphlets, and, and so on. He was very much uh, a patriot.
2: Right. He uh, wanted to serve in the military if he could. And Yes.
4: He try- tried to do everything he could for his country, and uh, uh, but he, I think he was quite decent, but he he had problems with his own morale because he was married, but mm. his uh, um, wife uh, had tuberculosis, and well, not a long time to to live, uh, and he started sort of a, a relation with a younger woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, who would after his first uh, wife's death uh, she would become his uh, his new wife so but he, that relation started long before the death of his first wife and he, it was a totally platonic um, relation but
2: but she would she would travel with him and and things like that
4: uh, well uh, they would meet yeah uh without the knowledge of his wife and so on, but she understood. Uh, yeah, you, uh, yes, but because almost all his, the rest of his uh, his his mother often followed him to these meetings to to be a sort of chaperone. Uh, right. Um, many other of his family members knew about this relation, and he's, so he 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 must have had. Problems with this for himself because mm-hmm. he wasn't really that man in his own mind.
2: But he seemed to have a lot of sympathy for his wife.
4: Yes, at least um, uh, when he was married to her, I think he I don't don't want to say that he forgot her. But when he remarried, she didn't mean anything to him. Officially, Mm -hmm. and when he wrote his autobiography, she's mentioned very little and and so on. So uh, I think when he remarried, he didn't want to disturb his new wife about memories of the old one.
5: Mm -hmm.
2: Okay, so are you ready for a surprise bonus question?
4: (laughs) Yes, please.
2: Okay here's here's i have two surprise bonus questions for you uh the first one has a couple of different parts so here's the first one on a vacation to london you attend a seance and meet some mysterious people one of them tells you afterward that she is able to grant you an unusual wish you can have dinner with either sherlock holmes dr watson or arthur conan doyle who do you choose
4: I would love to have a dinner with Conan Doyle. Because, um, <laughs>
2: right. You're, uh, you've spent he, so much time with him, tracking him down and, and figuring yes, things out about his life.
4: He, I think he is more of a mystery to me than Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Uh, Watson.
2: <laughs> Interesting.
4: Even more than Sherlock Holmes. Yes, because I think I... No Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <So, laughs> I spent so much time
2: with him. <laughs> right, right, and I well, guess uh, I guess he's all three people in
4: one, also. Yes, um, uh, I mean there are there are parts of uh, Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson in Conan Doyle and vice versa. So right. I don't mean that Conan Doyle uh, had himself as a model. For Sherlock Holmes, even if his, even if his wife uh, after his death and his sons really meant that, said that uh, he didn't model it after Joseph Bell, he did model it after himself, mm. which is really weird. But that was what they uh, said. And uh, <laughs> right. Yes, I, I think in that case maybe Watson is more like Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. A decent man.
2: Right. So here's part two. Yes. She checks her notes and says, oh, I'm sorry, you can actually have dinner with two of the three. Now, which two would you choose to make your dinner party?
4: I think I would have a a, a more interesting conversation with Dr. Watson than I would have with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sherlock Holmes isn't really, the, um, it, well, it depends on which version of Sherlock Holmes, but, um, but he's not that social if he's not choosing to be social.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
4: uh, it's more of a gambling to, to know, will he be social this time? Right. Uh, I, I would like to meet Dr. Watson. Yeah. I think that's that's more interesting.
2: I think if you had uh, Conan Doyle and Doctor Watson in the same room, there would be they would have a lot to talk about, and they would probably get along very well.
4: Yes, and I would really like to know uh, if Doctor, if, I mean, if I meet Doctor Watson, then he must be alive, and then Conan Doyle must have been not the author, but right, sort of the literary agent. And- uh, and I would really like to know how they work together <laughs> yeah. with these stories and why it's Condoyle that is on the spine of these books. <laughs> it's right. There, was,
2: right. It would be the, so many
4: questions. Such a great
2: literary. Yeah. And you could ask them about Holmes, but you could also just ask them about publishing and, and the whole literary aspects of it. Um, okay. Part three. She checks her notes again and says, Oh, wait, I had this all wrong. You get to be one of these three. Which one would you prefer to be?
4: Oh, I would hate being Sherlock <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, 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 <laughs> Because
2: oh. he seems so uh, tormented?
4: I mean, he is so focused on things uh, that he tends to forget eating, forget
5: sleeping. Mm-hmm.
4: And well, I know all about that after having written this book. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I think it would be more interesting to be Dr. Watson.
5: Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
4: sort of, I like living quite a normal life.
2: Right. But to be in the to be in the presence of such an interesting person, but to actually be more of a uh, straightforward person yourself.
4: Yes, I, I'm quite a straightforward. I'm, I'm not that special. <laughs> uh, I, I think so. <laughs> yes, I would like to be Dr. Watson.
2: I can tell you that. Really? I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I try, yeah, I try. I tried. Uh, I tried out these questions on my sons. I have two sons. They are ten and uh, about to thir- about to turn thirteen. Mm -hmm. and they could not answer any of the questions. They just couldn't decide. As soon as they would choose one, they wanted to choose the other, and as soon as they'd have one over to dinner, they would want to have somebody different, and they just went around (laughs) and around. So I thought, well, this is good. We'll ask the expert. Um, Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the way Conan Doyle reacted to the success of Sherlock Holmes, and it seems like, as a phenomenon caught him and I guess everyone probably by surprise and he in your book it it, you walk through the different phases that he went through it seems like his response to being the author of Sherlock Holmes developed and changed over time
4: yes uh, the thing is that when the first Sherlock Holmes success came. He had written two novels, a study in Scarlet, Scarlet and, uh, and the Sign of Four, and they had not been successes.
5: Mm. Uh,
4: and then he started writing short stories um, about Sherlock Holmes, and it was an immediate success mm-hmm. in the Strand magazine in in the fall uh, 1891. And right before that, he... Was so close to uh, being um, going into the re- real elite of uh, British fiction authors, uh, serious authors, mm. uh, uh, because he wrote historical uh, fiction, historical novels, and um, the newspapers call him one of the most promising young authors of the time. Right and then Sherlock Holmes came and took over everything yeah he couldn't get back to the position he had i mean he was one of the most best selling authors and one of the, he became one of the most famous person in in, in the united kingdom and in the world mm. and in the early 20th century but he, could never get back to that position on going into uh, the real serious literature uh, elite. Right. And you I think t- he wanted to be there, but he couldn't get back to that.
2: You give a, a great example of a lecture tour he was going to give where he prepared three lectures and he would give whichever one the audience requested. And uh, I think it was 34 out of the 34... Of, 34 out of the 35 nights, they requested the one on that would talk about Sherlock Holmes.
4: Yes, it was where Sherlock Holmes was a tiny part of, of the lecture, but it was at least something about Sherlock Holmes. Right.
2: They didn't want to hear <laughs> no. what he had to say about the author George Meredith or no. uh, or contemporary writers or anything like that. It was just, you're here to tell us about Sherlock Holmes. You're the author of Sherlock Holmes.
4: And that continued for the rest of his life. Uh, wherever he came, people just wanted to discuss Sherlock Holmes, and I think sometimes he must have been so angry about it, and uh, uh, I think uh, he, he wasn't always that decent man. Right. <laughs> I, I think he was quite irritated when people started asking questions about Sherlock Holmes all the time.
5: Yeah.
2: How did he respond when people sent him letters that were addressed to Sherlock Holmes as if he were a real person or asking for Sherlock Holmes' advice? Was he flattered or irritated or, or frightened or what?
4: I think he felt it a little bit weird. Yeah. I, he probably thought that some of them were jokes. Yeah. Uh, but many of them didn't really feel like Jokes, so um, right. I think, I think he wondered what, what, what is going on. It's, it's a a fict- fictitious character. It's not a living person, right?
2: And he he seemed to have a good sense of humor about some of the parodies, uh, at least initially.
4: Yes, uh, early on he felt flattered, uh, and that was. Mainly because who wrote the parodies of Sherlock Holmes? Well, mainly his his friends.
2: Right, J. M. Uh, Barrie was the was one of the early ones.
4: Yes, and Robert Barr was another mm. one, and uh, and so on. It was mainly his friends uh, or people he had met. Uh, so um, he felt that that was okay, and uh, they were parodies, which also meant that uh, *Paradise* wouldn't have been written if Sherlock Holmes had not been that popular. So so it was really a way of uh, confirming that Sherlock Holmes was such a success. Um, Right. But uh, when people started uh, writing about Sherlock Holmes just to earn money, um, Mm -hmm. that became a problem for him. There was a a German dime novel series, I think there were 230 uh, novels um, which were uh, published around 1909, 1910 uh, and uh, onwards. Um, And they were distributed and translated into many of the European languages. The problem with these were, they were about Sherlock Holmes and his young friend, Harry Taxon. Not Dr. Watson. Mm. He wasn't there. And they were quite bad. And they were just um, quite violent and a lot of... Oh, it was just action stories. Since they were distributed and sold, they were really cheap. And, and since they were sold in so many copies people started thinking that that was Sherlock Holmes. Right. And and that was a problem uh, for Conan Doyle because he still wrote Sherlock Holmes stories in 1910. Uh, He was getting more and more trouble because of these stories, uh, because there were political discussion about what these uh, stories, the the fake ones. Um, what they did because they inspired crime. Mm. Uh, we, here in s- Sweden, we had a number of crimes. Uh, criminals who had s- said that they had read the Sherlock Holmes stories, well, these fake ones, and uh, been inspired to to, to make uh, criminal uh,
2: things. Right. To so, because they wanted to show that they were a master criminal who could...
4: Yes, yeah, sort of. They, yeah. they had got the ideas of what to do from these these oh, stories. Right, uh, right. This thing was getting Conan Doyle into trouble. Um, because, I mean, in Switzerland, there was a, was there a murder on a train, uh, I think. And uh, the murderer had also re- read... Sherlock Holmes stories the, the, the fake ones so uh, Sherlock Holmes' stories were forbidden to be sold on train stations in in Switzerland, Switzerland uh, on on railway stations in in Switzerland because of that and, and that of course, um, was a problem for Con- uh, Conan Doyle, too, because they didn't think think about that there was a difference be- between right. the originals and the fake ones.
2: Right. One of the things I was struck by is how he himself had to take on the project of trying to control the different uh, imitators or the different uses of the Sherlock Holmes figure. It It made me think that today, you know, with a Character like Mickey Mouse or something. There's a whole team of lawyers who would be writing letters and and monitoring things and trying to get cease and desist orders out and everything. But this was Arthur Conan Doyle actually had to write the letter to the German publisher saying, "Please stop this."
4: Right? Yes, because there was uh, there was no other character like this. It had uh, it, it didn't happen to anyone else. Right. It, <laughs> This was so special for Sherlock Holmes because there were so few popular characters uh, around that that were used with with no copyright, uh, with no uh, uh, no right to do this. Right. So Conan Doyle
2: he he killed off Holmes, and I think that's a pretty well known story that he was tired for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about. That it was hard for him to have his other books recognized. And and then he resurrected Holmes. And I think a lot of people who aren't that familiar with the story think that it was that he did it for money or that he uh, could never replicate the success, and so he brought Holmes back. But there seems to be another side of this where he actually seems to have started enjoying Holmes again.
4: Well... Well, he actually did it for money. Okay. <laughs> That's the main <laughs> but, reason? <laughs> uh, he, yes, uh, because he, um, he had his um, big house that he had built, and he needed money for that house all the time. Um, uh, so he accepted an, an offer from the U.S., from uh, an American uh, magazine to write 13 new stories for i think it was $45,000 he got mm-hmm. for that.
5: Mm.
4: He couldn't really say no to that when he knew that he needed the money. Right. Um, but of course he that was at the point of time when Sherlock Holmes was so popular again because of uh, William Gillette an American actor and uh, uh, scriptwriter for theater. He had written and produced a play called Sherlock Holmes, which uh, had its premiere in 1899 and which was a huge success in the United States and then in, in Britain and in and many other countries in Europe and so on right. uh, for many years. And that play meant that Sherlock Holmes. Was really popular, and um, Conan Doyle started to like Sherlock Holmes again. He he did, hadn't forgotten about Sherlock Holmes, but uh, I think he um, noticed that it's quite fun to be the author of Sherlock Holmes. Actually. Right, right. And, and he, that was right, right right after he had written uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, which also was a big success.
2: That's the era that really struck me, and that's why I made that comment about he seemed to have enjoyed. Uh, the company of Sherlock Holmes again, and and one of the stories that you tell in the book is how he started writing uh, the Hound of Baskervilles just as an adventure story or mystery story without Sherlock Holmes, and then he realized how much better it could be if he put Sherlock Holmes in it. That he had this character that was all ready to go, that would be you know a great
4: vehicle for the story. Yes, um, but I think he was quite a practical man mm-hmm. who, make, who made it easy for himself. It was easier to have Sherlock Holmes right. solve this case than inventing a new character. Right. And the and audience so,
2: already knew him. He already had all the details himself worked out. Yeah.
4: And that that was the case also when he wrote The Sign of Four because uh, Lippincott, Lippincott's magazine in, in the US uh, had Uh, asked him to write a novel, and he had only written A Study in Scarlet before, but he thought that, well, I could use uh, use that uh, character Sherlock Holmes once more. And Mm -hmm. when he he had the idea of writing uh, short stories about a reoccurring character, he felt that, well, I hadn't planned to uh, use Sherlock Holmes again, but why not? I'll, I'll make it easy for myself. Right.
2: I'm going to try one more time. And I'm going to talk about the story yes. where uh you told which I actually found very moving where he this was after he had killed off Holmes and he had gone through the period where he was trying to distance himself from Holmes then he he listens to a reading of the play I think it was and it was the one that he approved of the one that Gillette had been so influential yes. in putting together. And he was heard to say later, it was nice to see the old chap again. Something like yes. that. Yes, Which, uh, you know, it made me think that it's not an easy thing to be Conan Doyle and to deal with this creation you have that threatens to overshadow everything else in your life and all your other work. But he still seemed to have a, a residual affection for him as well.
4: Yes, uh, I think that his initial thought was that, If I kill Sherlock Holmes, life will be different. I don't have to deal with Sherlock Holmes again. I will be able to concentrate on other things. But I don't think his life really became that different. Mm. Mm -hmm. Sherlock Holmes still existed, even if he was dead. Right, right. He existed in people's minds, and. And I think that maybe he felt that he couldn't go back to his, his old writing career. He he wrote a lot of other stories, and they were really popular, but could back, go back to Sherlock Holmes and have um, quite a normal relation to Sherlock Holmes again.
5: Right,
2: right. Okay. Are you ready for surprise bonus question number two?
4: Yes, I am.
2: Okay. Uh, it's the year 2000. Your phone rings. It's the author J.K. Rowling. She's heard that you are an expert in the life and works of Arthur Conan Doyle. She's starting to wonder about her own new creation, Harry Potter, which, who seems to be taking on a life of his own. She wants to be true to her creation, but she also wants to be realistic about how much control she's going to have over him. She's wondering if Arthur Conan Doyle's example can help her at all or if the world has changed so much that she can't use him as a model. Is there anything that you've learned about Arthur Conan Doyle, his attitude or any mistakes that he made or any of his experiences that you would share with J.K. Rowling?
4: I think the world has changed, Mm -hmm. um, especially when it comes to copyright situation. Right, right. Because copyright was so new in uh, in Conan Doyle's time, uh, especially international copyright with the Berne Convention uh, from 1886, uh, which was just a year before the first Sherlock Holmes story. So uh, the copyright situation is one thing, and that is of course a little bit boring uh, answer <laughs> to say to J.K. Rowling, but uh, I think she will understand that it's very different and she can't really um, be compared to the Conan Doyle situation but on the other hand what Conan Doyle probably realized he didn't want other people to earn a lot of money when he didn't earn money for example Mm -hmm. with these German dime novels that were
2: They sort of exploited him,
4: yeah. Yes, exploited him. And I don't think J.K. Rowling wants anyone else to write about Harry Potter, but Conan Doyle saw a lot of fan fiction, (laughs) Right. you can call these early parodies and pastiches fan fiction. It just meant that Sherlock Holmes grew. Mm -hmm. I think J.K. Rowling also would understand that. Uh, and if you look at, for example, Warner Bros. Uh, Brothers, early on when they had produced the first Harry Potter movie, they were hunting everyone who used uh, Harry Potter. Uh, I mean, all kids who um, had blogs or, uh, well, right. or websites where they were using these characters, uh, they were really hunting them and trying to uh, shut down all of these websites. But that changed and came a time when uh, Warner Brothers started working together with these kids because they Mm -hmm. realized that they were fans. Right. Fans and fandoms are so important for fiction, books and films to be really big nowadays.
2: Right. Right. And just to generate that enthusiasm, if it takes the form of people wanting to write stories and put the characters in different situations, that might be something that it's better to embrace, in a sense, yes, than to it, try to it, tamp if down. Pe-
4: if people, if the readers or the viewers want to love a character, they should be able to do it in all kinds of ways. I think Conan Doyle was rather okay with that. Too, even if uh, he didn't let people y- use Sherlock Holmes um, uh, um, in, in all kinds of ways.
2: Right. It seems like there's a difference between going after a German publisher versus going after the readers, or or maybe a fellow writer who's just inspired to write a a piece of fan fiction.
4: Yes, uh, I I think so too. Okay.
2: Well, let's leave things there. I know that I had asked you, I knew this was going to be a big topic and I asked you if we could focus on just the period during the life of uh, Conan Doyle. And I'm hoping that maybe we can do a part two where we talk about (laughs) all of the many interesting things that happened after his death and the way that Sherlock Holmes continued to to grow and change and the legacy of of him and the way that his... uh, his literary heirs had to fight over over his image yeah. and, and everything. And, and I'm hoping that you'll be willing to come back for a round two of the Sherlock yes, Holmes I w- iconography. I, w-
4: I would love to do that because that is a really weird and uh, fascinating <laughs> bit. <laughs> um,
2: okay, great. Well, we will look forward to that. And thank you for joining us today on the History of Literature podcast.
5: Thank
2: you. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Matthias Bostrom for joining us. Remember to visit us at historyofliterature.com and if you would like to help support the show you can head over to patreon.com slash literature that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash literature and sign up for a donation starting as low as one dollar a month we are extremely grateful for all your generous support and some of you listeners have said hey jack how about some more swag how about how about taking those wonderful prizes and items gift items that are available from patreon.com and making those available for purchase well we're working on it we've got something cooked up in beta soon you may be able to buy a mug or a tote bag and guess what i've seen some samples and they are beautiful we'll make those available soon in the meantime i'm jack wilson heart of darkness is coming up and a fun episode on crime fiction So hit that subscribe button and get ready for the fall season. We've got some episodes you won't want to miss. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.